You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. We're glad to have you listening in for David's Pick. Uh, we've got a beautiful day going on here in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. It's going to be a little warm, but that's okay. That's uh, something to be expected in Atlanta in the summertime. So, And today we have a special guest on. He just couldn't stand not being on again, from what I understood. But anyway, we're glad to have him back. And uh, he's... Uh, one of my heroes, and I'm sure he's a hero to a lot of folks that he refueled in Vietnam. We have Jeff Hill on, and uh, Jeff was a refueling pilot in Vietnam. And uh, Jeff, good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. We're going to uh, start out like we do just about every show that involves veterans or anybody in the military we're going to take one minute to just of silence to uh thank god for our veterans and our active duty folks we'll be back in one minute and then we'll follow with our favorite thing a cadence call we'll be back right after this to uh, thank all of our veterans and all of our service men and women on active duty, particularly as a father and with a son that's made him very proud, my son that's the major in the Air Force. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful to have two sons, and, and the one in the Air Force is uh, I know I can sleep better at night just knowing that he's He's in charge somewhere. But anyway, we do appreciate it. And uh, before we get started with our show, we've got to do a little morning rain. You know, this is just something we love. I can do it, you can do it, and uh, that got me that last half mile in a forced march or double time or whatever, and uh, I don't know of anybody that's uh, gone through that doesn't like Jody's, but anyway, we've got uh, Jeff Hill on, and uh, we're delighted to have you back, Jeff, and I think this time, instead of whatever we've done in the past to some degree, you're going to start off with some stories 
and then uh, I'll probably interrupt and ask some dumb questions. Well, that's okay. There's no such thing as a dumb question. You know, that's, that I've heard until I ask it and people point and laugh. Yeah. So I don't know what that means, but I've always heard that. But anyway, uh, I, I before we go into all of it, I want to wish you a, a very good weekend and uh, hope that uh, it brings back some fond memories for you. And... Uh, so let's talk about Vietnam, and I, you know, every time your name comes up, all I can think is that guy's got guts to be flying around with what did you say, thirty four, thirty five thousand gallons of air fuel, air, uh, air force uh, diesel, fuel? essentially diesel uh, jet fuel. Well, it still blows up nicely, um, yeah. and I, I just. Uh, I I just golly and uh, but I guess they I guess diesel doesn't have quite the I don't know what is called spark value that other fuels might have. Well, it, it ignites at a you know higher temperature I think and uh, yeah, but I've never had uh, but one experience with a fuel tank that exploded on the ground. But hmm. that was more due to the fumes rather than the actual fuel itself. Interesting. And uh, um, in uh, Thailand, our airplane was parked next to a above-ground fuel bladder, and a Thai civilian was on top of the bladder with this big hose blowing air into the tank to clean it. And for some reason, it ignited, and this guy ended up about 20, 25 feet above the tank, launched like a missile. <laughs> and, of course, he... He hit the ground, and fortunately for everybody, he only broke two arms. But we thought that it was the North Vietnamese launching a mortar at us, so we we exited the area qu- quickly as our engines were running. And uh, so anyway, we learned later on that it was uh, an accident caused by a spark on the uh, fuel fumes on the above-ground fuel tank. Wow. That's my experience. That uh, that had to take some investigation, didn't it? Oh, I'm sure. Wow. <laughs> how, it, how, it, how it was ignited is a mystery to me. But anyway, we never stuck around to find out. Well, you know, I, I greatly respect you as the pilot. And then the other half of that formula is the um, buoy operator. Um, I just, uh, you know, the one that uh, controls the... The uh, fuel provider. Oh, you're I guess. talking about the boom operator. Boom operator. Yeah, I said yeah. Boom, mm-hmm. boom operator. But uh, mm-hmm. that that person, and I think he said, generally speaking, it was an E6, E7, something like that. Usually, it was a fairly high-ranking enlisted um, uh, person. Uh, there were three officers on the crew: the pilots, the two pilots, the navigator, and then the boom operator was. Uh, Usually an E5, E6, E7, something like that. Wow. Uh, that had to be a, a bit of a nerve-wracking job as well. But anyway... Well, it uh, was a huge responsibility because not only he was he responsible for making sure that <clears throat> they didn't have a collision between the boom and the, and the receiver airplane, but he essentially was in charge of the uh, airplane from the cockpit on back because he was responsible for any... Any loading problems, anything that happened in the back, 
uh, that was his deal. And uh, it's a huge, huge responsibility. For example, if we were carrying cargo or passengers, he was in charge of the back of that airplane. Wow. Uh, Let me ask you, Jeff, was was, um, uh, the fuel delivered... Uh, was it a gravity flow or was it uh, a push flow? Well, there were pumps, and we pumped it into the receiver airplanes. Oh, okay. So, and these were, uh, I would assume, electric motors or electric pumps. Oh, sure. Yeah, powered by the uh, engines on the on the tanker. Wow, a lot to know, and like you said, that uh, NCO had some. Uh, had a lot of responsibility, and do exactly. you, let me ask: Do you feel like they were credited with? With uh, did other people recognize the responsibility that they had? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. Um, certainly, were uh, in my mind uh, highly, highly thought of. Uh, how other people felt, I, I don't know, hmm. but uh, I certainly did. Okay. I was a first lieutenant, and these guys were E6s, and I pretty much did what he told me to do. <laughs> he would give me some tips once in a while, and I'd follow what, because he had been in the service a lot longer than I had. So it was a great deal of respect given to the boomers. That, that's super. So you had uh, you had some stories that you wanted to uh, deliver, and like I said, I'll listen and, and ask the questions. Well, this was it, uh, uh, concerning um, one of the missions that we had was to get F, uh, particularly F-4s from the United States to the uh, to Vietnam and Thailand. And the way we did that was what, what we called the Pony Express. And uh, that entailed us uh, meeting the fighters outside of uh, San Francisco at the Farallon Islands and then flying in formation to... Hickam Air Force Base, which is Honolulu International, for the first leg of the journey. And that was about a six, six and a half hour flight. And what we would do is three tankers would uh, be in the formation, and we'd be a thousand, uh, separated by a thousand feet and one mile nose to nose. And then the fighters, uh, which of which there were uh, 12, there would be two fighters on each wing of each airplane. So we had this 15 airplane gaggle running from San Francisco on the first leg to Honolulu International Airport. And that's kind of the segue that leads me into the, the story. But uh, to finish the refueling part, uh, that we, I think we talked about this before, is the next day after refueling and maintenance and so on and so forth, we would take off the same gaggle. And uh, on our way to Guam, which was about an eight-hour flight, <clears throat> and uh, we would uh, get about halfway, and the third tanker would offload all his fuel and go back to Hawaii. And so now, in the middle of the ocean, we're now uh, two tankers and 12 fighters, which means that there were three fighters on each wing of the tankers on into Guam. Then the next day, from Guam... And we would take the fighters to somewhere over Manila in the Philippines, drop. We would leave and go to land at Clark Air Force Base because we were out of fuel. And the, and the fighters would then <clears throat> go on into Vietnam on their own. And it was kind of like the old deal, Pony Express. <laughs> but anyway, 
on the one of the missions, the last missions I had was was exactly what we're talking about. And on um, March the seventh, nineteen sixty eight, is a day is a day that I'll remember forever. Not because I knew about it then, is because I knew about it about twenty, thirty years afterwards. And <clears throat> this is the story of the. Uh, of the taking of the K-129, a Soviet submarine, and it's how the CIA used Howard Hughes to steal a Russian sub in the most daring covert operation in history. And I want to read to you from the... uh, There were about three books written. And this book that uh, I'm referring to is The Taking of the K-129 by Josh Dean. And it is the most... the biggest, most expensive... Uh, undercover operation in history. It's, and I'm going to quote this from the, uh, from the book because it says it better than I can say it. In the early hours of February 25th, 1968, Russian nuclear-armed submarine K-129 left Siberia on a routine combat patrol to Hawaii. Then it vanished. As the Soviet Navy searched in vain for the lost vessel, a small, highly classified American operation found it, wrecked on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. The sub lay three miles down, but the potential intelligence assets on board, the nuclear warheads, battle orders, and cryptological machines, presented an extraordinary opportunity. So began Project Azorian, a top-secret mission that took six years, cost an estimated $800 million dollars and would become the largest and most daring covert operation in history. After after the U.S. Navy declared retrieving the sub impossible, the mission fell to the CIA's burgeoning Director of Science and Technology, which commissioned the most expensive ship ever built and told the world that it belonged to the reclusive billionaire Howard Hughes, who would use the mammoth vessel to mine rare minerals from the ocean floor. Of course, this was a complete lie, uh, in my comment. In reality, the vast network of spies, science, scientists, and engineers attempted to project an even crazier than Hughes' reputation, raising the sub directly from under the watchful eyes of the Russians at a time when nuclear annihilation was the constant fear and the opportunity to gain even the slightest advantage over one's enemy was worth massive risk. Okay, so the beginning of the story is starts in Russia when um, Captain uh, Kobar, the Russian commander of the submarine, to- told half his crew to go home on a vacation to see Mama. And so uh, a few days later, in walked the Spetsnaz Onaz, which is the the Soviet name for the uh, ONAS means uh, Naval Special Forces, and they commanded the captain to leave the port in Siberia, told him that they were trained in submariner activities, and to go to a spot 400 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor. And that they did. And uh, as they got away from the Soviet um, mainland, they opened the orders, and the orders were to to go 400 mi- to a spot 400 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor surface and uh, do their thing. And as it turns out, 
the Soviet Union had given uh, the Chinese two Type 1 submarines, which meant that since they were older, they had to surface in order to launch their uh, missiles. And so what the Soviets did is they serviced the uh, K-129 with Chinese oil and Chinese artifacts and blah, 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 to make it look like it was a Chinese submarine. And the reason for all this, the main reason for all this subterfuge was the fact that the Soviets and the Chinese were fighting on the Sino-Soviet border. I mean, it's not all peaches and cream between the Russians and the Chinese. So the, the main reason, I'm giving you the main reason for all this happening was the Russians, and I'm going to give it to you first as opposed to last, the, the main reason that the, the Russians wanted to, this to look like a Chinese launch was the fact that they were fighting on the Sino-Soviet border, and they wanted Mao Zedong to think that it was, uh, they wanted Mao Zedong and the United States to think it was a Chinese launch. So therefore, the, the Americans would ch- retaliate against the Chinese as opposed to the Soviet Union. Well, this was the big, the big lie. So anyway, to fast forward, so now the boat is uh, 400 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor and surfaced. And uh, the Spetsnaz ONAS, the Spetsnaz being special forces, ONAS being naval special forces, arrested the crew and locked them into the forward and aft compartments of the submarine. And so this ONAS guys uh, knew a lot about the launch of nuclear weapons, but they didn't know about one thing, and this was the key to the whole thing. You remember back then it was uh, mutually assured destruction. So in other words, it didn't make a hill of beans who launched first a nuke weapon, because as soon as they launched, we would launch 20 seconds later, and both places would be destroyed with a nuclear explosion. So it didn't make any difference who launched first. So the Soviets were, and, and their leadership was concerned about this, and of course they didn't want it to happen as much as we didn't want it to happen. So the U.S. geeks, and I say that with a great deal of respect, because I love geeks, the geeks that devised the fail-safe system for the United States Armed Services gave the technology to the Soviet Union because it didn't make any difference. And they, they wanted to prevent a launch from the Soviet Union as much as the Soviet Union didn't want a launch from the United States. So we gave them the technology, and um, I uh, got involved with the fail-safe system as a tanker pilot when we were pulling alert in the United States, and we would get the bell ringing, and we had to run out to the airplane, start it, and be ready to go in a very, very short period of time. But we didn't know if it was for real or not. It could have been a training exercise. It could have been the real thing. Well, up to this point, it was all training. And um, so, but it did keep you on your toes. So anyway, um, the the uh, pilots and the navigator, the pilot not flying and the navigator were responsible responsible for decoding the message as to whether this launch was for real or for practice. So two of the officers in the crew had to verify the code 
and transmit that to the pilot flying the airplane, so on and so forth. So anyway, as uh, time went on, we, uh, like I said again, we gave this, and rightfully so, gave the technology to the Soviet Union because we didn't want them to launch against them. Well, that sets up the story because the Spetsnaz Onaz knew nothing about the fail-safe codes. The, the technology given uh, was pretty well compartmentalized in the Soviet Union. And a lot of the times the Soviet leadership didn't know about this exchange of technology. And a lot of the naval officers, the high-ranking admirals, didn't know about it either because you don't have a need to know this. It was given to the submarine service and the people responsible for the launch of nuclear weapons uh, that they had to know about this fail-safe system. This didn't filter down to the KGB. Now, uh, these Spetsnaz Onaz guys were pretty much uh, led by the KGB. And uh, this whole deal, this whole scenario was cooked up by a guy named Yuri Andropov, who was the head of the KGB, and eventually became premier of Russia for a short period of time, a year. Then he got cancer, I believe, and died. Anyway, long story short, it was Yuri Andropov and Mikhail Suslov. Mikhail Suslov was the chief theoretician for the Communist Party. And so Andropov and Suslov cooked up this rogue launch scenario, talked to the, uh, to the KGB and the special forces, and uh, then they forced the submarine to go 400 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor. So anyway, after the, to fast forward back to March 7th, 1968, uh, the KGB arrested the crew members, locked them in the forward and aft compartments, surfaced the boat, and attempted to launch the missile. And they pushed the button, but they didn't know anything about the fail-safe codes. Well, as soon as they pushed the button to launch the nuke weapon, um, the weapon defaulted to a explosion of the warhead while it was still in the in the launch tube of the submarine. So the missile exploded while it was in the launch tube and broke the submarine in two and sank it in 17,000 feet of water. So everybody obviously died, the, the KGB as well as all the crew members. <clears throat> so what happened was that the KGB guys in the special forces didn't know about the failsafe codes. Mostly, the people that only knew about that were probably three or four different officers on the uh, submarine, and those and that was obviously that all that information was compartmentalized, like we do here in the United States. You don't need to know this. It filters down to corporations. You don't know what the heck's going on at the top, so on and so forth. So things like this can happen, and it did. A few weeks later, or months later, I can't remember what it was, uh, there was a research ship from the University of Hawaii out 400 miles northwest of Pearl. And they noticed uh, a lot of stuff floating on the surface of the water, personal stuff, uh, notebooks, clothing, blah, blah, you name it. So the, the simple response was they called the Navy and told them of their, their find and where it was. 
And to make a, a long story short, the Navy then <clears throat> triangulated uh, uh, the noise level of in that area on March 7th, 1968. And it was done by the SOSIS tapes, and that's the Navy's technology where they can uh, hear sounds from hundreds and maybe thousands of miles away. And what they did was triangulated this explosion to 400 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor. And they said, huh, and it wasn't ours, and it must have been somebody else's. Well, then somebody remembered that there was a satellite pass that day, and so they confirmed this explosion from the satellite pass as well as the SOSIS tapes. So they figured something really bad happened. So long story short, uh, this this uh, this techno- the technology and the findings uh, promo- uh, uh, led the uh, CIA to get involved um, in building with the uh, the uh, Glomar Explorer. Well, the Glomar Explorer was one of the biggest ships uh, around, and it took almost I think it was about four and a half years to build. And the CIA got involved, and they took over from the Navy. Well, they built the ship, and they took it to um, 200 miles northwest of Pearl again. That keeps coming up. And um, they uh, were able to lift most of the submarine off the surface of the or the, um, the bottom of the ocean, 17,000 feet down. And um, they got it up into the uh, through the bottom of the boat and uh, were able to inspect it and so on and so forth and they found uh, the bodies of the uh, crew members uh, that were uh, in uh, locked into the forward and aft compartments and that eventually they lost part of the sub I don't it's it's a little opaque as to how much of the sub they got but anyway uh they were able to uh, eventually tell the Soviet Union of their find after they had given these Russian submariners a proper burial at sea, and they, they taped it. But not only that, they were able to remove the bell off the back of the conning tower of the submarine and flew it to, to Washington, D.C., to the Pentagon. Well, over the next several months and years, the uh, Soviet uh, naval uh, people uh, would travel to Washington or our people would travel to Moscow trying to figure out um, you know what happened to their submarine well finally uh, when the Soviets uh, ended up in Washington at the Pentagon the Americans put the back of the the, the bell of the uh, submarine uh, on the on the conference table and of course the Soviets were just beside themselves and that told the Soviets that we had their technology, and their and and they didn't know whether we had the the boat or not. I don't know. It's very opaque about who knows what. But anyway, uh, that's the story of uh, a rogue launch, and that's what we face today. Uh, you know, uh, we face Iran with increasing submarine capability. We face North Korea, of course, and of course Russia and China, and. Uh, you know, it, there's nothing that says this couldn't happen again. And that's where I think where our real risk is, is somebody goes nutso in a government and, and is able to pull this off. So, uh, Jeff, we need to stop there and take a break. Uh, 
and let it, let everybody think about it because yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right. It could happen uh, any time, any place, and uh, I think we're vulnerable. So we'll be back with more of Jeff Hill right after this. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. And we'd love to see you down at the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. It's in the um, Sloppy Floyd building right across the street from the capital of Georgia. And uh, it's worth a day trip just to take for you alone or you and your grandkids or whatever. But it... uh, We have a lot of heroes in Georgia, and we certainly recommend that you go there. And um, we have all sorts of other areas that you can go. Uh, Johns Creek, Georgia, has the the wall that heals, and that's a replica of the uh, Vietnam Wall in D.C. that traveled all over the United States, healing a lot of open wounds. memories of vietnam memories of friends and uh we recommend you go there our peachtree corners has another great display another memorial so check it out and uh, we'll be back with jeff right after this you're listening to america's web radio on the america's broadcast network.com thank you for listening and welcome back uh we've got jeff hill on he was a tanker pilot in vietnam how did you uh land that job exactly or were you told you're going to be well that's a good question uh pilot training uh was very competitive uh there were probably i don't know let's say 20 uh students in each flight uh in our uh flight we had three german uh federal german naval ensigns because we had decimated the german uh, uh, pilots during World War II and we had 
shot down a lot of them, killed a lot of them, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so now the Germans are now rebuilding their Air Force. So they were sending young uh, people over to, well, I went through pilot training in Phoenix, Arizona at Williams Air Force Base. So in my, cla- in my flight at, uh, in pilot training, we had three federal German naval ensigns and three Luftwaffe sergeants because the Germans also allowed enlisted guys to fly airplanes. So we had six out of the 20 were Germans, and of course they're going to go back to Germany and fly whatever they're going to fly, but the Germans made a big mistake, and that, this kind of draws it off, but it was interesting, is that uh, the F-104 was uh, sold to Germany, and of course the F-104 was way beyond its years. Uh, it, it was the most te- uh, technologically and speed-wise, it was way ahead of its time. And so you take uh, these new pilots with maybe uh, 150, 250 hours of uh, flying time, and if they get behind the airplane, uh, their life lifespan is uh, very, very short. And that's exactly what happened because the uh, these Germans were, you know, sent across Phoenix to Luke Air Force Base and trained in the F-104, and then you add to the mix uh, the low ceilings in Germany, the bad weather, and the uh, marginal navigational equipment, and uh, about half of them were killed in aircraft accidents in the F-104. But that's just a side story. To answer your question, um, it was so competitive, you, had, uh, you were given a wish list, and um, out of that wish list, uh, you, you, were, you put them in order, and according to your order of graduation, you were then assigned an airplane if it was available. And it seems as though um, we just lost Jeff. Jeff, I'm not sure uh, what happened, but uh, we lost you, my friend. So I suppose the best thing to do would be, uh, if you can hear me, call back in. We've been talking with Jeff Hill, and uh, I'm not sure exactly what happened. He just was talking, and here you go, and there he went. So we'll wait for uh, Jeff to call back in, and uh, or we could uh, get Brett to come in and uh, call... We'll call Jeff. Um, Not sure exactly what happened. Mr. Allman. We lost Jeff. Would you call that number, please? Okay, we're going to see if we can uh, get Jeff wrapped up again on the line and... uh, continue with his stories and like he was saying the the uh, submarine that was off the coast of Hawaii that uh, blew itself up because somebody had forgotten to give the uh, the, self, the failsafe code and uh, it didn't work so we'll uh, We'll see if we can get Jeff back on the line uh, very shortly, and let's see if we got him now. 
Jeff, you there? Okay, hold on. Let me transfer you back in. Okay, I think we got Jeff on. Jeff, you there? Well, anyway, uh, I, I'm assuming we, uh, that uh, you didn't hear this. Otherwise, it would be a slight, uh, slight inconvenience. But anyway, out of our class of 20, we had six Germans, three Luftwaffe sergeants, and three federal German naval ensigns who were initially assigned to go fly the F-104, and that was a bad decision because the F-104 was so far ahead of time, and it was so fast, and you mix that in with the uh, <clears throat> the, the uh, uh, bad weather in, in, in Germany, and as well as the poor navigational facilities and low ceilings, and it was a mix for a disaster, and that's what happened, and about, uh, I think about half those guys died as a result of aircraft crashes because the airplane was so hot. And then, uh, so there's 14 of us left, and uh, Americans, and uh, we were given a wish list, and you put your your requested airplane that you wanted to fly down in, in order, and then <clears throat> consequently uh, they matched that up against what was available, and so I ended up uh, in the mix with a KC-135, and it was a, a good decision as far as I'm concerned. Well, we want to be. We want our airmen to be happy. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, uh, it uh, it it wasn't all that democratic, but it, you know there was some there were some uh, evaluations that I'm sure the instructors made to you know because everybody wants to fly the SR seventy one. Well, let me. I, I was going to ask when you uh, did your Pony Express, what kind of altitude were you uh, were you all flying at? And oh, about also twenty five to thirty thousand feet. Okay, so did you have a civilian clearance, mo- you know, of some sort? Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a oceanic control uh, over uh, you know from from the United States to Hawaii. Sure. Okay. Uh, so go ahead with your stories. Well, um, let's see. I, I'm trying to figure out which one I was going to tell. <laughs> <laughs> the true um, one. The what? The true one. The true one, exactly. Yeah. Oh, one of the things I wanted to mention again, and uh, this this should everybody should listen up on this one, is the um, not, it has nothing to do with you know flying per se or anything like that. It has to do with the GPS system the, which which we rely on. And I would, uh, and just as an aside, uh, I've done some research on this, and uh, one of the most vulnerable economic uh, risks that we have is a degradation of the GPS system. Now, <clears throat> for example, if you, uh, uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but GPSs can be spoofed. To give you an example how it can be spoofed is, you remember about a year ago when a British tanker was seized off the coast of Iran? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so they arrested the crew and they kept them for a few weeks and, you know, they had all this diplomatic activity. What had happened was, was fairly simple. You can buy the technology illegally, of course, but you can get it. 
to uh, the hardware and the software to spoof your position. So consequently, uh, they, being the um, the ground-based uh, people uh, in Iran, were able to spoof the position of that tanker. So the captain of the, uh, or the uh, cargo ship and the, the captain of the cargo ship thought he was in international waters, where in actuality he was in the territorial waters of Iran. So that was the excuse they used to seize the ship. And this was all done, this has been all done through the Russians and the Iranians. And so what they did is they spoofed that position, used it as an excuse to seize the ship, and they did. And, of course, weeks and weeks later, they are finally able to release it. But here's the problem. The problem is each GPS satellite has an atomic clock, and it's very accurate. And so, consequently, these atomic clocks talk to each other. And um, I had a classmate of mine who was the chief of staff of the space division, and his job was to put up the last two satellites in the early 90s. And it takes 24 satellites to um, to cover the Earth entirety. So consequently, there were two more two more to go up, and he did. And I was able to verify all that stuff because I made a trip on my own using GPS all the way out to the coast of uh, California. Anyway, that's another story. But so consequently, if if you can you can spoof anything, just like anything. You have a computer, you can be hacked, no matter what. So consequently, we're finding that out with the Colonial Pipeline and other areas that have been hacked, the the beef factory, so on and so forth. So what happens is the biggest perpetrators of spoofing technology are our own truckers, because you can these truckers can buy this software and hardware and spoof their owners into thinking they're somewhere else. So they can, they can um, uh, avoid some of the Department of Transportation rules. Well, if they can do it, anybody else can do it. So consequently, if the um, the Soviets or the Chinese or the or the North Koreans want to, they can spoof our system. And what happens is, in getting back to the the atomic clocks. That screws up all the timing with the atomic clocks. Well, they found out that if the atomic clocks are off each other by by as as much as 13 millionths of a second, you won't be able to use your ATM or your your, uh, smartwatch at all because banks use atomic clocks and so forth so if the atomic clocks are off it'll screw up the banking system you won't be able to use your ATM card or your cell phone that's where the risk rise arises can you imagine if we compare the risk of what happened with the colonial pipeline with a total blackout of your ability to communicate I mean, you could come up with all kinds of bad scenarios, and that's where where the risk really rise, uh, really resides, is in the GPSs. Wow. Well, I don't know how many folks uh, 
just lost their lunch over that one. Um, well, everybody ignores it. I mean, uh, I go to a gathering or something like that, and then the subject comes up because I don't offer it off, offer it up, you know, just arbitrarily. And if I get in a conversation and I tell people this, what happens is eyes glaze over. Oh, I'm sure. People, people don't want to hear this. But it's a big risk. It is. And is there any antidote to it? I think the antidote is to be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> With, I'm not a survivalist by any stretch, but, uh, you know, be prepared for this to happen. Uh, anything that has a chip in it is vulnerable. Hmm. Your car. Certainly. Uh, just to name one. Just think you can't you go out and start your car and it won't start. So this is, how would you compare this to an EMP attack? Same kind of stuff. You know, same same kind. I, I, I don't know much about EMPs, but it's got to be horror. And uh, EMPs, I would assume, would be a lot more destructive. Well, uh, you know, electronic, uh, uh, what is it? Um, pulse uh, is uh, you know and it it shuts down like you said chips and everything else shut down your car you can be driving along and your car goes dead and uh, electronic magnetic pulse and uh, that's that's what would uh, put all of us out of business I, I would think so yeah I, I was gonna. I was gonna. T- I only have enough time left. Uh, I could tell you the, a successful story about Vietnam. Are you interested in that? Sure. Good news is always. This is good uh, a story that occurred on January second, nineteen sixty-seven. My birthday. It was a, uh, a raid on North Vietnam called Operation Bolo. And uh, be on be on the lookout. And uh, one uh, the Soviet, the the North Vietnamese by this by the end of '66 had been fairly successful in shooting down a lot of American airplanes. It was as a result of the Chinese and the Russians, you know, supplying North Vietnam with surface air missiles. Um, anti-aircraft fire and MiG pilots and they were the MiG pilots were being trained in Russia and so on and so forth they were getting better and better all the time and they had a hit and run tactic using uh, um, MiG-21s which were pretty fast a couple maybe twice the the speed of sound so consequently our guys came up with this uh strategy called Operation Bolo, what they did was, is because F-105s were much heavier and uh, much more vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire and surface-to-air missiles, uh, were getting shot down regularly. And so these three guys, uh, who remain nameless, um, came up with a strategy to counter their success in shooting down our airplanes. So Operation Bolo took tech, and what it was was 
we took the transponders, which are the electronic devices that uh, tell the ground investigators uh, what kind of airplane you are and so on and so forth, um, enemy or friend and so on and so forth, uh, and they took the transponders off the F-105s and put them on the F-4s, the Phantoms, which were much, uh, were much faster and more agile than the F-105s. They also took the electronic warfare gear off uh, some of the F-105s and installed them on the F-4s. So um, the reason I know about this is my crew and I were were asked to lead this mission from uh, Thailand, which we were based at a place called Utapau, Thailand, on the Gulf of Siam, south of Bangkok. And we went up through Thailand and uh, and up to the uh, Laotian North Vietnamese border and waited for these F-4s. Well, as far as the North Vietnamese were concerned, they, their radar told them it was there were F-105s. So this was the big spoof, so to speak, and we refueled the F-4s as they uh, just before they entered North Vietnam because the tankers weren't allowed to to go into North Vietnam for obvious reasons. We were sitting ducks, and. Um, so the F, uh, F-4s uh, entered North Vietnam at posing as F-105s. Well, the, the, the North Vietnamese bit the bait, so to speak, and sent their MiGs uh, up later to intercept the so-called F-105s and found out too late that they were F-4s. As a result, uh, that day we, were, we had no losses and we had seven kills. And so it was the most successful day that we had against North Vietnam uh, in the war. And it showed at the time, I think, the North Vietnamese only had 21 MiG-21s. And we shot down seven of them. And um, it was a, a, a good day. So uh, that was one of the brightest days of my, of my combat career in Vietnam was listening and going through the, the radio channels, listening to these guys shoot down these MiGs. It was a, a great day. And then, of course, uh, when they were done, they came back to, through Laos and where we were located, and um, we refueled them on the way back. But without the tankers, they couldn't have done that. And, and that's the ad, so to speak, is the tankers made all this happen. <laughs> and, um, and would never take credit for it, obviously. Well, no, we didn't get much credit for it. I, you know, it was like uh, it was like anything else. You know, uh, that's just the way it was, and so we didn't seek it, and we didn't seek the credit, and um, nobody gave it to us. <laughs> I remember one mission we had where we kind of pulled a guy out of a foreign country named uh, named Cambodia, and of course we weren't in Cambodia, according to Walter Kissinger. And uh, we pulled this guy out of Cambodia and refueled him and took him back to Thailand. And we didn't get any credit for it. As a matter of fact, the Air Force pilots were told that uh, if we went to North, uh, the tanker pilots were told that if we went to North Vietnam or Cambodia, we'd be court-martialed. And because uh, we were just, you know, just sitting ducks, so to speak. And as a consequence, a couple of years ago, when the um, North Vietnamese fighter pilots and the U.S. fighter pilots met in Hanoi, 
And, uh, of course, there was the big reunion of the former adversaries. So one of my friends was going over there, and I asked my friend to ask the North Vietnamese general why they didn't come after the tankers. And the answer came back, we didn't have enough gas, we had enough fuel <laughs> to attack us because we were so far away, you know, further than the fighters. Plus, plus they would have had to gotten through the fighter cover that we had. So, as a, as a result, to the best of my knowledge, uh, our uh, <clears throat> we didn't lose any tankers to any of the uh, any of the MiGs. Well, we did something right, huh? Exactly. It was a positive, a, 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 one of those success stories. So, as a result of that, uh, out of as a result of the seven out of the twenty-one MiGs being shot down. The North Vietnamese kind of had to reassess their their tactics, and uh, and then they were very inactive for several months after that. Hmm. So, amen. You did know? did uh, did you all do any refueling of something like the B fifty twos? Oh yeah, uh, that was uh, that was interesting. Those were those were the B fifty two raids over. Uh, over North Vietnam and some on South Vietnam. And uh, the first time I went to Vietnam, I was stationed at Utapau also, and there were no B-52s. It was mo- mostly tankers. <clears throat> and then the second time I go back in 1968, um, they, had, they had expanded that base at Utapau. Uh, substantially and, and extended the, the taxiways and the revetments and they brought the B-52s in from Guam uh, to be closer to the to the war fighting effort in in Laos. The, the, uh, it was closer it was closer uh, for them, it was easier for them to get to Laos and North Vietnam out of Utapau which is on the Gulf of Siam just south of Bangkok. And it was easier for them to get to North Vietnam from that area uh, rather than Guam. Guam was a long way, you know, for to, to go from Guam to North Vietnam and back to Guam again. That was a that was just too long, too too long of a mission. I mean, you get really tired, and you make mistakes when you're tired. Correct. So. We're going to be wrapping it up here in a few minutes. Uh, any other uh, information that you'd like to share with us, Jeff, today? Not really. I, you know, I, I'd just be uh, just be knowledgeable that if your if your ATM doesn't work, <laughs> or your your ATM card doesn't work, or your phone doesn't work, you'll have an idea. Uh, that maybe you ought to try your GPS, and if that doesn't work, God help us. <laughs> we're, we're in deep trouble. Um, in, deep, in deep trouble, and I think if that's the most practical advice I could give you. The rest is all history. But I'm just saying that, uh, you know, sometimes the GPSs are not all that accurate. Sometimes it gives, I don't know if you've had have this happen, but it's happened to me. It was where it gives you erroneous information. Yes. And one of the... So some guy complained about that to me, and I said, well, where were you? And he says, well, I was on 75. And I said, well, you were probably next to a truck. 
and he was spoofing his position, and it leaked over to you. Huh? He said, "Oh my God!" You know, could be true. Uh, I've I have a 2018 Explorer, and uh, with a built-in GPS and all this stuff, and uh, it'll misdirect. It's happened more than once. And um, I, you know, I don't know how you cure it. Basically, you turn off your car and start it back up again at some point. Not, well, not as you're to, rolling down the road, though. I have to tell you one funny story to end all this. And my wife had given me her watch. And she asked me to take it to the jewelers in Atlanta. And... Um, get it fixed so uh, this uh, uh, I went into the jewelry store and this guy comes out and he's got, he looks really kind of geeky he's got tousled hair and his, his his glasses were on his nose and so on and so forth he, and he had this twinkle in his eye <clears throat> I should have known better but anyway we got to talking about this GPS stuff and I got there was a segue that he asked me about accurate time and so on and so forth and then that reminded me of the atomic clocks which have the most accurate time available and so on and so forth and I said you know I said my wife doesn't know north from south and I said you know it's a problem and if we have this problem with the GPS's God forbid at least they won't know how to navigate and I said we really need to teach our children and our families how to navigate and the difference between north and south and you know, where's the, the the magnetic pole versus the true North Pole and so on and so forth. And I said, and, and we're talking about this, and he said, um, you know, he said, my family is Jewish, and we get lost a lot, sometimes for 40 days or 40 years. <laughs> he said, when did this GPS stuff start? <laughs> so... Anyway, that was the, the comeuppance to, to uh, you know, people just don't know how to navigate, and they rely on this GPS. Oh, yeah. With that, though, I tell you what, we're going to have to GPS out of here. It's, I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. And, uh, Jeff, we look forward to the next time you'll grace us with your presence. You'll find us on GPS. Well, thank you very much, sir. Take care. Bye. Bye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.